Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. As Christians, our hope and confidence is in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the assurance and confidence that we have that he reigns as Lord in heaven and that we can know of him and his purposes for us as they have been revealed to us through the messages of the prophets and the apostles preserved in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. A lot of people who would attempt to challenge or criticize a faith in Christ would attempt to do so by challenging the legitimacy and the validity of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, as a way of understanding anything about uh, God and Christ. And they try to, in various ways, cast aspersions upon whether or not we can really have confidence that what we see in the New Testament is really, in fact, indeed, the message God would have had communicated to us. And so, we do well to spend some time looking at the New Testament text to understand how it developed, how it was transmitted, some of the arguments that some people make against it. And so we're going to begin where it begins in the first century. Between the year 30 and the year 100, the books that we call the New Testament were written. Uh, many of Paul's letters were probably the first written. Uh, many believe the first Thessalonians may have been the first part of the uh, Bible written somewhere around the year 51 or 52. Uh, perhaps when the Gospels earlier, we can't know. By the 60s, however, almost everything had been written. So uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the book of Acts, uh, most of the uh, universal Catholic letters, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, except maybe for uh, John and maybe Jude. And of course, all of Paul's letters were written by then. By um, 100, everything was fully written. Um, some people dispute whether Revelation was from 75 or 95. Regardless, uh, based on its context, the entire New Testament would have been written by the year 100. Now, starting after the year 100, and as we get into the second century of our era, uh, there's a clear divergence. Uh, the people who write uh, guys like First uh, Clement, um, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria. They're writing, there's a lot of material written, but all of the material that is written is based on what had been said by the apostles. There was not an expectation that there was more revelation going on. There was an understanding that uh, the witness of Jesus um, went through a transformation with the death of the apostles. Now, to be sure, in the second and the third centuries, there were people writing documents in the name of various uh, people in the New Testament. Uh, some of these were people who were Christians who were trying to piously kind of expand upon uh, ideas that they would have seen in the New Testament in Acts of Peter, Acts of Paul and Thecla the Proto-Evangelium of James, books like that. There are also the Gnostics, those who deny Jesus' uh, bodily existence and therefore his resurrection and death, uh, and they wrote a lot of things. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Truth, Gospel of Philip, Apocryphon of John, lots of different documents. And so you've got all these different documents out there, and you get a guy named Marcion, uh, who starts challenging whether or not uh, Christians should 
use the Old Testament. It tries to uh, establish a quote-unquote New Testament involving Luke and certain letters of Paul and those heavily uh, adapted. And so it became clear to early Christians that there needed to be an understanding of that which was written by the apostles, which was profitable for Christians to uh, use to come to understanding of what God had made known in Jesus. Um, there's no formal canon. Now, canon, this is not the kind of thing that you use to shoot uh, uh, cannonballs at people. No, canon, C-A-N-O-N, also not the camera. A canon is a fixed, uh, agreed-upon set of texts. And so the canon of the New Testament was not established formally in the second century. But you look across the spectrum, and there's wide agreement on the things that are inspired. Uh, we have in the year 150 or so, a, a fragment that, of course, later, it came later, but seems to date from that period, called the Miratorian Canon. And it's a fragmentary document, and it considers to be what is inspired scripture. There's some apocryphal editions, uh, like, um, the, I think, the Shepherd, uh, Firmus, First Clement. There's a couple letters, uh, Second John, Third John, Second Peter, not mentioned, but the majority correlate to the New Testament as we have them: the four Gospels, the letters of Paul, other uh, quote unquote Catholic letters, and so on and so forth. And we've uncovered fragments of papyri that include parts of the New Testament from about 150 uh, onward, uh, or 175, and the earliest part is a part of the Gospel of John. And so we start seeing fragments. We can see in the early Christian writers voluminous quotations from the New Testament, and we see in them attested almost every single book of the New Testament being quoted authoritatively at this time. And so there's this moving toward understanding of these are the documents that came from the apostles themselves, other documents are not. Uh, from 250 to 400 is the period that this canon goes from being unofficial to more official. Uh, in 312, Constantine uh, recognizes Christianity officially, persecution ceased. A big part of the persecutions at the end of the 3rd century involved burning of scriptures. Uh, that a lot of the scriptural evidence from before then is very fragmentary uh, because a lot of it had been burned in, in all kinds of anti-Christian uh, programs. Um, it is finally in 366 where Athanasius, claiming to be Bishop of Alexandria, circulated a festal letter that included the authoritative list of books in the Old and New Testaments, and that is a list that we still use today. Uh, interestingly, that book of the Old Testament did not include the apocryphal works. Uh, the list was codified in the Third Council of Carthage in 398 of our era. There's been a lot of arguments since, but the New Testament canon has been considered consistent since that period. That's also the period that we start seeing the great, what we call, unseal codices. Unseal uh, is a certain way of writing the text, uh, the Greek text, and they're big uh, documents. The codices are these parchment uh, editions, uh, books of the Bible that have been hand-copied, and uh, including Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Uh, their initials are Aleph and B. Uh, that are very often talked about in terms of early witnesses to the New Testament text. And also during this time, we have their first translations made. So there's the old Latin translation, the Syriac Peshitta was translated. Uh, we're starting to see the New Testament coming out, not just in, in Greek, but also in other languages. And it's now has this firm shape, it's recognized the books that are in it, and it's also recognized why the books that aren't in it aren't in it. 
Now, from 350 until about 800 of our era, the text goes through a lot of copying. And, of course, most people, especially toward the end of this period, are copying at our monks. And during the copying of this at this time, there are some errors that creep in. This text has not been standardized uh, very much, and so there's a lot of different families of copies that develop and are propagated. Uh, toward the end of the 4th century, Jerome is making his translation of the New Testament to Latin, uh, the Latin Vulgate, uh, which will be considered authoritative in the West. Uh, during this other this whole period, the Coptic, Egyptian languages, Bukharitic and Sahidic, the Armenian, Ethiopic, Amharic, and Old Slavonic translations, among others, are made as well. And so we have all this other evidence from all these different translations. Somewhere in the middle of the first millennium, somewhere 500, 800, we start seeing uh, a standardization of the Greek text, which is taken on behalf of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, in the Byzantine Empire. And the rest of the history of the transmission of the text from about 800 to 1450, around when the printing press is established, is basically copying of that standardized text. It's the Byzantine text uh, because of that, um, also called the majority text because the majority of our manuscripts that have survived over time uh, have come from this time period. And it's worth pointing out that the New Testament has been handed down to us uh, in thousands of manuscripts, uh, something like 3,000 different manuscripts. Uh, whole, hundreds of those are complete copies. Um, in comparison, the best attested work of uh, ancient Greek literature outside of the New Testament is Homer's Iliad, which has come down to us in, I believe, something like 300 maximum uh, copies. And uh, there are many uh, texts that have come down to us in one copy. And wherever there were breaks in that copy, we don't have the, the what, what was in that part of the text. And uh, so if you read some of those uh, work classical works, you might notice there are uh, gaps or lacunae in them. Uh, because we don't have any text to tell us what was in it. Uh, meanwhile, we have the, the New Testament and these thousands of, co of manuscripts, hundreds of complete copies. Even if all of those copies were gone, we'll be able to reconstitute over 80% of the text just based upon quotations of the New Testament found in early Christian authors. So we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the uh, way that we can attest to the New Testament text. Now, since 1450, the printing press has facilitated greater accuracy and greater distribution. Uh, ironically, of course, one of the, the, the Bibles came out and made a minor mistake in the uh, Ten Commandments where they did not have a knot, and it's called the adultery bell because it said, Thou shalt commit adultery. Uh, it was a printing error. And so printing errors can still happen, but with the standardization, uh, you don't have hand copying, you have a lot less of that. In fact, one of the projects in the Renaissance was to reclaim the Greek text of the New Testament in the Western world. Uh, a scholar named Desiderius Erasmus took up that call and using some Byzantine manuscripts came out with a Greek New Testament in 1516 that will be called the Textus Receptus, or the TR. This would be the text that is used on the basis of the King James Version and would be considered the primary Greek text for about 350 years. In the 19th century, uh, as there's growing interest in archaeology and, 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 and ancient studies, many desired to find ancient copies of the New Testament if they could find them. And many Europeans went to monasteries and other locations, especially out in, in the east, in, in Egypt, and, and other parts of um, the, the eastern Mediterranean, Middle Eastern world, and they found a lot of these manuscripts. 
And the evidence from these texts show a lot of variants from the, the Texas Recaptus of Desiderius Erasmus and indicates that, uh, that what Erasmus had, which was still enough to provide the message of the Word of God, but that uh, a lot of inaccuracies had crept in. And so that is why our more modern translations of our Bibles, uh, the American Standard and all of its descendants, the Revised Version, New Revised Version, the New American Standard, English Standard, uh, many others are all translated on the basis of Greek texts that take into account the evidence from these more ancient texts. We don't want to overstate that. There, there are some differences, we're going to talk about that, but on the whole, you can pick up the King James Version, and from the King James Version, uh, you're seeing the text at its most quote-unquote corrupt, with the most, uh, the highest number of variants. And let's be honest, the King James Version was a version that uh, untold thousands have come to an understanding of God's purposes from. Uh, the, the amount of variation we're talking about is very insignificant in terms of the whole, and that shows God's providential concern in the transmission of the New Testament text. He uses humans as is his purpose throughout all of this. He, he communicated the Word of God through humans. Uh, it is through people that this message gets communicated and handed down, and it has been handed down in remarkably good condition, indicating the providence of God. Now again, there's a lot of people who have a lot of challenges that they put up against the text uh, based upon all kinds of things. Uh, one of the myths that you'll hear is the, an expectation, well, the Catholics corrupted the Bible. Uh, or, yes, that uh, was one of the big ones. Or that, the, that we have the Bible because of the church. And the church is seen as this kind of conspiratorial thing out there. And therefore, that's why there's all kinds of reasons to question the text. And that's historically impossible. Because the uh, Catholic Church, as we understand it today, with all of its uh, hierarchy and organization, did not exist in the first century. It did not exist in the second century or third century. It only started building that kind of uh, authority after Constantine. Um, the Catholic version of the Bible is it was the Latin Vulgate anyway. And we've got plenty of texts that come from around the Mediterranean world that come across, you know, not just in Italy, but in Greece, in Egypt, in Armenia, in, in, in the world of Syria, uh, down into Ethiopia. And, and all of these versions are, are relatively consistent. And again, we have quotations of New Testament texts from before there was even an imagination of Rome being the central authority. And they attest to the text of the New Testament as we have it today. There is one addition that we can clearly see in 1 John 5, 7. It's called the Kama Johannem, uh, and there are three that bear witness, the Father, the, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Uh, this is an insertion based upon a, a comment made probably by Cyprian in the 3rd century, uh, based upon uh, what John had written about the witnesses of the water and the blood and the Spirit, their agreement that in Latin text crept in and eventually came into a couple of Greek texts and, and thus used by Erasmus and now in the text. But uh, notice that we know about that. I just gave the whole history of how that variant entered the system. Uh, it's, it's very hard to clean up after that stuff. The fact that we have variants shows that there's a process that we can see and we can see how that all works. And so it's very hard to uh, sustain the idea of a Catholic conspiracy. Uh, a lot goes on in terms of uh, how the Bible got put together. And everyone's convinced that the Council of Nicaea determined the canon of the Bible. First and foremost, as we discussed earlier, the canon developed, it was not established. 
there's already wide agreement about which books would be in the New Testament. Uh, Patricia Gaul, early Christian authors cite the New Testament constantly as authoritative long before Nicaea. And also, the Council of Nicaea did not do nearly as much as is given credit for. The Council of Nicaea had been convened about the question of Arianism, about whether or not the Son of God was created or was uh, co-eternal with the Father. Uh, declared Arianism heretical. It established the Trinity as the official description of the mystery of the Godhead. It did not make any declaration about what was Scripture and what wasn't. And that myth, therefore, is entirely baseless. We said the Third Council of Carthage later would be the one that would officially recognize the books of the Bible. And this goes to our next myth, well, that the Catholics left script books out. There are certain books that they wanted out because they, they didn't like what they had to say. And again, it's not like the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope held sway. Uh, that institution would not exist until much later. The majority of those involved in the process were actually Greek, not Roman Catholic. And there are a lot of different books that were not included, but there were substantive, reasonable bases for not including them. There were criteria used, like, did an apostle write it? There were books that were claimed, like the Shepherd Hermas, which is a very invaluable devotional book of the 2nd century. No apostle claimed to write it, therefore it's not part of the canon. First Clement. No one seriously has doubted that Clement of Rome, an associate of Paul, was responsible for it. Uh, some consider it inspired, but most did not, because he was not, he was count, he was around Paul, but he himself was not inspired. Um, there were books that were claiming to be written by the apostles, but which nothing could be found in the, in tradition or anybody uh, talking about it. And when it did start being talked about, people would cast aspersions on saying it wasn't from uh, the time of the apostles. And so all this evidence was used to say, hey, these books, they may have some value, that's why they've been handed down to us, but they're not inspired scripture. The Gnostic texts we talked about were clearly heretical. They were advancing a very different view of who Jesus was and what he was about. That was much more amenable to the Greek philosophical world of the day. Uh, these things were known by early Christians, they were quoted by early Christians, and the refutations that they were trying to do of these doctrines that were being advanced. Um, so they were never to be really considered to begin with. And so, there, all of these different books were known about, uh, they were judged, and they were seen to not be inspired. And here's the thing, if you have some doubts about that, you can go on the internet and find these books. You can go to the library also, there are a lot of collections of them, but you can go online and look up the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of John, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, uh, Acts of Paul, Acts of Peter. Uh, you can look up the Gospel of Thomas, the Apocryphon of John, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas. You know, all these books that you hear about, you can find them online, you can read them. First Clement, Shepherd of Hermas. And you can see why. The, new the, the, the early Christians recognized these just really weren't at the same level. And they did not have the uh, attestation of authenticity as the books we have in the New Testament. 
And, you know, there were some questions about the books that are Some A lot of people had questions about Hebrews because the author was not explicitly identified. There were questions about Revelation because of how the heretics used it. Uh, there were questions about Second Peter because it didn't seem to have the same level of attestation as other books. These things were judged, and different groups had different opinions about it. Ultimately, though, the mass majority recognized you know, the quality of the material in Hebrews testifies to its uh, inspiration. Yes, heretics may have used Revelation, but it, the fact it was given to John by Jesus was not seriously challenged. And so they remain in the New Testament. This also confirms for us that the, the, the knowledge, the, the first-hand experience, uh, the apostolic authority has passed away, as we would expect First Corinthians 13, 8-10. Another common idea about the New Testament is that okay? Fine. It's 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 the the Bible is the word of God, but it's been overtranslated, and it, it's kind of assumed something about history, which is logical. It makes sense, but it's not how it actually worked out. You know, we understand okay that Jesus talked in Greek, and our in the Western tradition we had Latin, and now we have English, and so we assume the Bible has gone through all those. Uh, different stages and so now we're looking at third fourth language it's like that telephone game right where you know after two or three people the message gets entirely corrupted uh but again there were some translations that were made from the vulgate and the vulgate has been consulted with translations and there's sometimes notes that will indicate as much but for 500 years or more all of our english translations have come from greek to english so we're not going between more than two languages and our Greek texts correspond closely with codices made all the way back in 330. Uh, so we're condensing there almost over 1600 years of history to get to here right now. And we can't get a whole lot better than that. And again, there are some uh, witnesses of this text that go even farther back so that we're getting that much closer to the original text. And so no, the, uh, the, the New Testament is not over-translated in any way, shape, or form. Another myth is that all the copying errors have made the Bible inaccurate. And yes, the Bible was copied by hand for 1,350 years. Because there hadn't been a printing press invented yet. And those guys did an amazing job. They did a lot better than you and I probably would. But yes, they did make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are manifest in the various manuscripts. There were copy editors, and those copy editors did catch many mistakes in their copying. Um, and those, so there's errors exist, but we know about them. There's thousands of them, right? And we know about them because we have different text families uh, that we can kind of pick pick out. We can see relationships between texts to some degree or another. We've got manuscripts, again, from Italy to Greece to Armenia to other places. So we have a wide variety of manuscripts from different places and different time uh, that we can compare and contrast. Uh... And so in the whole New Testament, there's only three words that cannot be determined precisely based on all the manuscript evidence. And that reason is because those three words revolve around very similar looking words that all fit the context and have equal authority in the manuscript evidence. So in the end, the inaccuracies are three words that are related words in a, in a similar context. That's astonishing. After 2,000 years, that that's all that's really in doubt. A lot of people try to play up the differences between the King James, say, and the New American Standard, English Standard, but I, I encourage you to consider them. 
And I realize a lot of times I say, these versions take out all these words. Well, they take them out because they've been harmonized. In the original text, uh, words from Ephesians may be added to this passage in Colossians where they don't belong, expansions of piety or, or harmonization. Uh, it, in the original text, you know, Ephesians, where they came from, or there's other versions, other parts where they came from, the words are still there. They're not denying the existence of those words. They're just pointing out that in, in many manuscripts, it's not in uh, that particular verse. And Mark 16 is famous about that. There's some questions about the ending of Mark. But everything that's said in the ending of Mark uh, that would be of value is also tested elsewhere. It's not merely dependent upon uh, the ending of Mark. The Eunuch's Confession, Acts 8.37, same thing. Uh, there's some questions about it in the manuscript evidence, but we know the confessions existed and they were along the lines of, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So well, there's a general pattern that these fit. Like we said, expansions of piety. They were said, Jesus, they might add Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ. They're adding on terms. Uh, I said harmonization. Another example is in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer was so frequently uttered from Matthew in Matthew 6 that the Luke 11 version of many manuscripts was turned to be just like Matthew 6 because the scribe would see it and just write the, the Our Father as they knew it. Sometimes the scribe would accidentally skip a line or repeat a line. Um, and so fragments would get taken out or, or made redundant. There are misspellings as well. So these things exist, but we have such a wide range of manuscripts from such a diverse time and place that we can assess these things. There's textual criticism, which is a whole uh, art of, of assessing all of these different variants and to try to get to what the original text would have said. And again, it's an embarrassment of evidence, an embarrassment of riches that we're able to use to try to talk about these things. And again, if you don't agree with one person's opinion about it, you can still see the whole range. Uh, we have uh, we call critical editions of the Greek New Testament. Uh, the most commonly one uses the Nestle Land now in the 28th edition. In the Nestle Land 20th edition, uh, the, it, what that means is you, if you have an understanding of Greek and you uh, understand uh, all the different uh, abbreviations for all the different manuscripts, uh, you can look in the notes and it will show you the major variants in any given passage. So you can instantaneously see the whole range of possible things that have gone on in that passage. It's not hidden. It's not a conspiracy. It's all out there. Another myth is that the translations of the Bible do not make it true to the original. Now translation is hard work. And it is true that you cannot completely communicate everything in precise words from one language to another. There are certain words that you can't translate with just one word uh, from Greek to English, or English to Greek for that matter, and so translation is absolutely an art. And uh, but papyrus evidence we have, uh, we know about a lot of the idioms of the first century CE because of all kinds of papyri evidence that's helped us understand the text better. Um, you can look at different translations and see how different translations handle different passages. And from the different translations, it kind of helps give you a flavor of what's going on in the original text. And quite frankly, that's why there have always been commentaries. Part of the valid point of commentaries is to take a word or a section of text and to kind of elaborate in greater detail about what it means uh, based upon the culture, based upon the context, and based upon uh, the nuances of the word, comparing how the word used in other places. Uh, that's the way it has always been. Uh, so there are vanishingly few times 
or the text as composed in one of the major translations is going to be rendered in a way that's going to help really turn you in a wrong path. Um, and ironically, most of the time that's going to happen is going to be in an older translation like the King James Version, and that's more because of how English has changed. A great example of John 14, uh, in, my house, in my father's house are many mansions, uh, where mansions is a temporary dwelling place in the 17th century. That's no longer the way it is today. Of course, mansion is a big house because of that passage. Uh, but the Greek dwelling places, and reads a little differently that way. But that's not because of... Uh, a defect of the King James Version, per se, because in 1611, that's what the word meant. Words change our meaning. And so, again, you, the Bible reading and Bible study are two very important but yet distinct things. And as part of Bible study, there is the exploration of commentaries, exploration of, of linguistic evidence that will help provide a greater understanding and more of a flavor for a text. So we can absolutely come to an understanding of what God has made known in Jesus through the translations of the Bible that we have in our possession. And so can we have confidence that the New Testament that we have today in our Bibles is the Word of God? Yes, we can. There are many unquestioned texts of the ancient world that have so many fewer manuscripts it's not even funny. Like we said, the historical words Tacitus, two main texts. Iliad, sorry, so it's 600 more, so that was off a half, but the New Testament, 4,500 texts and fragments. Uh, the text had developed and transmitted over time. There were some errors that crept into the text, but they were unintentional common scribal errors. That We can explain them. They're not adding to or detracting from the truths of God's word. And think about it. Thousands of thousands of copies over a 1,200-year period in different languages and different places all point to the New Testament as we have it. And from all that evidence, we got three questionable words. That's amazing. And put simply, if we don't have confidence in the New Testament, we can't have confidence in any piece of literature handed down over generations. Any of them. Because if the New Testament can be falsified, so can the rest of them. So therefore, we do well to recognize we have kind of full trust in the New Testament as being the same today as when it was written, and that we can trust its message. Again, we're so glad you've joined us today. We hope that you have been benefited by this. If you have any questions or comments, let's talk about these matters in greater detail, or... If you have prayer requests or like to check out more about us, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. If I can be of any service, please reach out to me at my website, DeVerbalVitae.com. That's www.deverbovita.com. And we'd encourage you, if it's been a benefit to you, to share this message on social media. We again thank you. Have a blessed day.